From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast, season 12. Hello, everybody. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. I help startups stand apart from their competition and stand out to their audience with storytelling, messaging, and pitches that perform. In this podcast, you'll hear my conversations with startup leaders from around the globe as they share a slice of their company's story, stories on growth, scale, successes, and failures, all to help you and your company grow up and ultimately stand out. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to invite you to join the email newsletter that doesn't suck. That's right, if you head to startuphypeman.com and enter your email address, first you'll get my free SaaS masterclass, but you'll also get updates whenever you release new episodes, plus my storytelling tips and advice periodically throughout the month, and helpful resources from Startup Hype Man partners. It's the newsletter that doesn't suck, available at startuphypeman.com. All right, speaking of things that don't suck, let's begin today's episode of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Atlanta, Georgia, he is the founder of People Lift. Please welcome Timothy Visconti. How you doing, brother? Good to talk to you. I am glad to have you on the show today, Tim Visconti. Tim, as I said, is the founder of PeopleLift. What is PeopleLift? They empower their customers with solutions that relieve the pain behind hiring, retaining, engaging, and scaling a company's greatest asset, which is its people. PeopleLift has several big name customers under its belt, including companies like Hearst, News Corp, and Ernst & Young. And today we are talking with Tim about the topic of inclusive hiring from day one. Now, Tim, that's our topic today. Why is that on your mind? Why is it important to you? Quite frankly, it's the it's a business driver on top of a incredibly uh, important shift in the ecosystem, especially from a hiring perspective. Uh, DNI or diversity inclusion has been on the mind for decades, and it's really got a ton of momentum right now in the best way possible. And there's been now on uh, stats and revenue numbers that can go to support the fact that hiring a highly diverse organization is not only a substantial benefit for your employees, but substantial benefit for your, uh, your, uh, your business as well. So if we can tie this all together and include more people in the success pie, then I'm all here for it. That's really kind of the baseline of what we're doing as a business here. We're going to dive all into that in today's episode. Before we go into that topic of inclusive hiring, let's learn a little bit more about Tim. Now, Tim, you are from the state of Georgia, on the grind in Georgia, um, but you also spent some time growing up in Southern California. You moved when you were younger. How do you feel that move? I guess, do you remember that move taking place as a kid, and what was your like reaction in the moment? Oh, yeah. I, I remember having a skateboard and a surfboard and not realizing I could use either of those in Georgia too, too much because those <laughs> cultures hadn't moved their way over yet. But I moved right before the uh, biggest blizzard that Georgia had ever seen, the blizzard of 93. So when that happened, I had jeans and a hoodie as my entire snow gear. So the reason why I remember it is that my mother was 
petrified of the fact that we were all going to get flu within the first three days of us being out there because we had no winter gear. And all I kept saying was, what is this white stuff? What is this snow? It was a picture in a book. It was never a real concept to me. So from sunny California where it's 55 on a cold day to 15 degrees and two feet of snow, quite the jarring experience. So the answer, oh yeah, I'll always remember that one. <laughs> How do you feel you were able, so, so weather aside, what was the, let's call it assimilation process like once you moved to Georgia? Because around the age of like 10 is when you start to like form your own identity. You probably have some friend group in Southern California that you're leaving behind and you got to mm -hmm. make new friends now without necessarily the help of your parents. Exactly. I'd say the biggest difference was one, where we moved. So we moved to Loganville. So the, the, the distance between our neighbors was about a mile versus five feet in Southern California. Wow. So going from seeing everyone on the street corner and seeing all sorts of different folks from every part of walk of life to not seeing anybody was a massive change. Mm. Uh, just from, from and how did you talk about assimilation? It was, we were figuring things out to do by ourselves for the first time because we always had someone was doing something in the neighborhood, whether the cookout or a grill out or some form of basketball game or whatever it was to now figure it out on yourself. Uh, the second bit is I've always had more of a, call it a Southern California mentality towards things where things just didn't bother me or I didn't notice certain things. So my own ignorance had to be kind of shaken up a little bit because I assumed that, well, it's always sunny here or it's, oh, people believe this way. When, when you move out to Georgia, there's a very different demographic in a lot of ways. So that was something very interesting for myself. I'd say from a family dynamic was the biggest one because we're Italian. We, we, we cook together on Sundays. We hang out all day with the family to not have that and having to kind of rebuild our own kind of nuclear core family, if you will, and what we're supposed to do day to day, that was something that was really big for us. Um, so the, the difference is, I think you can look at California and Georgia as opposite ends of not only the political spectrum, but just the economic spectrum in a lot of ways. But what's been wonderful, in, in my opinion, is that Atlanta has become this exceptionally diverse cosmopolitan-like area to where you could say it is a lot more like a coastal organization or a coastal city and a coastal uh, demographic than it was, you know, October 25 years ago when I moved here. So 27 now for counting math. I'm trying to make myself feel younger here. So. <laughs> well, okay. So that's an interesting point you bring up. And one of the things you mentioned there is, you know, like the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking you moved to Georgia and what seems to be sort of rural Georgia-esque. Exactly. I'm thinking you're moving to a hardcore red state, and I'm assuming coming from Southern California, hardcore blue at least area, if not the whole state. What is, was that what it felt like? I know you were young, so it's not like necessarily politics is being discussed, but my question here is, did you find your viewpoints were being, did you find you had great opposition to your own viewpoints? And was it a culturally diverse setting you were walking into? Sure. Uh, like I think you mentioned, the, my political identity really wasn't formed at that point. It was much more just like what my parents had said or really what my friends felt at that point in time. But as I began to grow up and form my own kind of opinions around that, I realized how different they were. And you hit the nail on the head because you're talking highly densely populated beach community in a lot of ways within an hour or so of the beach at any point in time to exceptionally rural, very low density population. So when you're talking about even just the day-to-day -day activities, they could not be more different, you know, in terms of even just 
owning uh, gun ownership and things like that. It's a big mm -hmm. one, you know, especially in the South. So when I found the pushback was when I started to, when I really got into high school and started going through the high school to college transition, when I was more identified, or at least I identified on more of a left side of the spectrum, if you will, versus it was very clear that we are Republicans and mm. this is how we believe from day one. Now, I have to say this. It was interesting because, and I'll use the, a little story here. Um, I love to argue. I love to debate. I genuinely, I went to school for it. I was going to be an attorney. I was going to save the world. You know, uh, that was my vision in life. And so when I would have these discussions, I would play contrarian on both sides. If you were, if you felt right, I would go left. If you felt left, I would go right to just kind of play back and forth. And I found more commonalities in people's belief systems than I, than I really would, you would, you would think, but there were certain key tenets that were so fundamentally different that were shocking to me. And it was, I think it had more to do with the second part of your question was the cultural diversity which there was very limited at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Be very frank. Um, you know, if you were a minority in rural Georgia at that point in time, it was a minority minority, less than 10% mm -hmm. versus Atlanta right now. It's right around 50, 50, which is a very interesting mix. If you look, compare that to Southern California, roughly the same as you look in terms of population size. So, um, it was something fascinating to me to grow up with. Um, my, my colleagues and friends would always associate me like here, this is Tim. He does X, Y, and Z. Oh, and by the way, he is a liberal. Uh, so that was interesting. You had to be I like prefaced in your introductions. I, exactly. I because oh, don't worry if he says something that doesn't make sense. He's just a, he's just a, a guy on the left side of the spectrum, and it was fascinating. And that followed me all the way through, even when I got done with school. It was, and then, and I found it even more interesting now, especially in our highly polarized environment that I was given a tag based off of political affiliation. And then we talk about diversity and inclusion, let's tie it all back together. There's some, there's some serious hurdles that you know, organizations that have to get through that they have to detag themselves. They have mm. to unlearn behaviors that they have been, they've grown up with. And talking about hiring from a day one standpoint, we'll get into what that means. It's, it's taking back everything that you've been kind of been groomed and coached through, through business school in a lot of ways, and then focusing on what's going to move the needle in the 2020 economy versus the 1990 economy. Right. I want to, we're going to accelerate towards that in just a second, but I got one more question based sure. on this upbringing in Georgia. Um, how was the you gotta say Georgia, 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 Georgia. Georgia. <laughs> how was the civil war taught in school? Oh goodness. Um, first and foremost, you would find that the maker of our books, Texas Instruments, is very popular in the southern states. Not as popular. It's not not McGraw Hill. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah. you have some interesting. You have some interesting background there. Um, quite frankly, when you look at the uh, you look at what was celebrated and what was discussed on a day to day basis, it was from the South's perspective. It was the resistance of Robert E. Lee and, and those that are pushing back against the government coming down to tell them how to live their lives versus if you go into different coastal or northern uh, educations, you talk about from a very different perspective where slavery is brought up very early on. It's almost a topic that is moved to the very end of the discussion purposefully because it is not, uh, it was more in a the challenging of a way of being and a way of believing versus what the cruelties that were happening on the day to day from a slavery perspective. Fascinating. Because if you look at 
even just the sections of books and, you know, talk about civil rights era. It was very apropos with MLK recently happened a couple of days ago. Very small sections in these books. Very, un, very hazy, almost 30,000 foot view versus getting into the why behind everything. Um, and the Civil War is very much included in that. And it's, it's interesting because where we're at right now in Atlanta, you can go 30 miles pretty much in each direction and find communities that are heavily rooted in the fact that they still believe that they should have the, the, their rights to call it slave ownership still today which is just way slave ownership not not mind mind blowing to me yeah because uh so being very real here uh you know whether we cut this or not it is Uh, there is very uh there are marches that happen in the state of georgia so consistently um if you were to go after pulling down a statue from robert e lee or other generals you would be met by heavy heavily armed resistance within 30 miles of the city of atlanta which is fascinating but it's also terrifying for those uh, that unfortunately don't look or feel or act like uh, folks from the south yeah wow and there's a little, a whole side, little side note yeah. right there. We could go off on that for hours, man. Yeah, but. yeah. And there's a whole, uh, you know, the whole story about you know, the New Orleans statues being taken down. I, I read that book, and, and it, yeah, I know how exactly. I, I have an idea of how much resistance there truly is, and how how much people will take up issue with that. But I, I think this serves as I think a good launching point into our topic for today, which is inclusive hiring <laughs> uh, from day one. And one of the things you alluded to before was needing to unlearn previously learned or trained thoughts and behavior patterns. So why don't we start there with this discussion in that when we look at the hiring landscape of a startup today, Mm -hmm. what, what are the behaviors or the thoughts that have been trained and learned and why, why is that the case? Sure. So I think one of the, let's just go with the big, the old guard tenants, education, for example, from a certain school at a certain GPA level is a minimum requirement for organization. So you go at, uh, especially in SF-based companies, you know, we're gonna go with Stanford 3.0 and higher. What you've effectively done is cut out 99% of the population that can't afford to go to Stanford, and then you have a very, very specific demographic that goes to that organization or that school. Whereas certain businesses, when they're bringing in this process, they have an untrained or unconscious bias by going after set schools that they graduated with. So for example, UGA here in the South or Emory in the South, for example, or Stanford, like I mentioned on the West Coast. So by removing an education standard or a certain set of criteria in school, you have effectively opened up yourself to a large amount of the population. So that first tenet is you've graduated with a certain school and with a certain GPA, that is how we're going to operate. Second bit, it is um, operating in populations in certain areas that require transportation. For example, if you had a car that you could commute to a certain organization would then further shrink the amount of population you go after to hire for your specific degree. So not only we start off with, you say you're coming right out of school or whatever it may be, certain education standard. Okay, group A, then we further cut that. Can you come in on a day-to-day basis? Okay, so then you've effectively eliminated potentially single, uh, single parents or uh, you look at folks that can't afford a car for whatever particular reason at that point in their life. So all of those kind of tenants further and further shrunk the population to where the vast majority of diverse candidates had to be within five miles of their current employer, and they had to have been able to work various levels of shifts throughout the day versus 
folks that had more access to higher education, they're for assuming and a pretty healthy assumption that they had greater access to capital and greater access to transportation services could go have a higher flight opportunity across the, the spectrum. So they can move states, they could travel wherever they needed to to get to their next job. Now, within technology, with the vast majority of positions having a remote function, and then having the ability to look at or folks as an output, what can they do, not what have they done, is a very interesting change. Because now the entire world is open from a hiring perspective. So you're talking about, even in my organization, we have employees in Canada, Philippines, and Ukraine. Fascinating from how we operate as a business standpoint. More organizations are going to that, and which has then effectively removed those two previous barriers. What school did you go to? Was it local? Do I recognize it? Can you come into the office? Do you have capital to get a, a, a transportation day to day? So by removing those two, we've now shifted the paradigm. And that whether it was conscious or unconscious, I think it ends up being most more of a blend. We have a, we've really increased our total population with proactive from day to day. Part of that sounds like, I mean, you would attract those types of candidates if similar to those qualifications are written in the job description. And I know this exactly. has come up, I think probably more over the last year or two years, but how are companies actually writing their job descriptions? Can you talk through sure. sort of what's, what's the pattern been and what are the problems with that? Well, the, the old school way was a list of require, uh, qualifications that was meant to eliminate you versus now job descriptions are written to include you, to become more marketing documents, if you will. And there's entire courses and businesses that are built up that are just writing job descriptions to help organizations pivot and attract those types of talent. So there's a wonderful company called Textium. And what they do is text-based analysis around gender-based terminology. Vast majority of job descriptions are written with a heavy male slant. So if you write, if you if you diversify the language, you're going to pr uh, produce a job description. You're going to, in theory, increase the diversity among those that are going to apply. At the second bit, removing education and and years experience as barriers, you are then encouraging larger amounts of population to apply into your uh, functional areas. It is as big of a shift in anything that I've seen within the HR space because HR has a tendency of being pretty rigid. Let's be upfront because it's compliance driven. Don't get a suit. Person to and times. it's often seen as a cost center at a company. So you look at how do you make the least amount of noise? Exactly. So how do I stay under the stay under the radar? The UTR under the radar kind <laughs> of standard uh, uh, standard on this end. But now because HR is being asked to become marketers to appeal to a larger group, we're starting to kind of look at this and saying what can we change? The job description is a first and a very good example of what we can. And if you look at how even we write our job descriptions, we talk about who are you? What kind of person are you? Not what have you done? What would keep you happy? This whole happiness quotient day to day, what's going to keep you engaged in the job description? Not just here's our blurb. Here's our 12 lines of qualifications. Good luck to you. It is please interact with us. Mm. And I think there's a secondary part we haven't talked about at all is that this is one of the best times, if not the best economies that this country has gone through, especially from an employment standpoint. You can look at lowest unemployment rates since you know, even before the 70s on this end. If you look at a total population participation rate, it's labor, labor participation rate is significantly higher than it has been in our country's history. But what you have is a greater need for a diverse pool of candidates because quite frankly, the competition is insane out there. 
especially with small companies that are trying to compete with the larger players. So in a, in a lot of ways, I believe that the diversity and the inclusion part of this conversation has become a necessity as your day to day, because if you don't, you're going to get buried. And whether that is you know, morally in line with what it should be or not, the end result is that it's increasing across the board. And the companies that have been bought in and embraced it from day one, those are the ones that are killing it out there. And you see it. There's ex there are executive level roles just for inclusion and diversity in major companies now. That never existed. And that has become a major focal point. And you can even see it within Hearst, one of our clients. Um, our new CHRO came from purely a DNI background. She would just build those organizations. And this company has been around 126 years and they are saying it's necessary at our C-suite to have this person there. One of the titles you're seeing more often now at companies is director of or head of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I think exactly. is, it's been, to your point, it's been overlooked for so long. Now, caveat or, or qualification to what he said there with uh, one of the best hiring economies, we are doing this episode recording on January 22nd, 2020. So if you listen to this a year and a half from now when our projected recession hits, just know we were talking about this and in early January of 2020. It's going to um, age like milk here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tim, with the job description thing, I think part of what may has made it such a legacy, like cyclical issue is, at least to my knowledge, oftentimes companies get lazy and they just kind of like copy paste what they see another company did and then swap out for their own, you know, like language or whatever their company needs, right? Sure. And, and then that's what creates essentially the same job description replicated 80 times over in the marketplace, just with mm -hmm. bullet point changes. And I believe, I don't remember the exact stat, but there is stat that women will only apply for a job if they're 100% qualified, whereas men, if they perceive exactly. themselves to be like 60% qualified, they will apply for the job. So are you seeing a reduction in like, literally like in bullet points on a job description? Absolutely. Uh, we went through this with a, with a previous bank that I worked with where they had 17 bullet points on their qualifications. One seven. I mean, that's insane. <laughs> so the exercise we went through is reducing it to three. How can you drive down what you need to the very specific data debt where these are no, you can't compromise because this whole like, is it a nice to have or is it, is it something you can work with? They don't have that on a job description. You're seeing larger blurbs about who we are and what we support and our mission, vision, value versus what we're actually going to need on the qualification. That's also a second bit is this. I think you hit the nail on the head and you, you're absolutely right on this. 100% was the standard for the vast majority of women applying. And it was right mid 60s, low 70s for men. So if it's now two to three, basically it's can you do this, these functions? If you can, doesn't matter what your background is, you know, how you identify, we're all about output at this point. And that's, that's been a really encouraging trend. And you'll notice the thing is this, if you look at uh, employment and applicant ratios versus other organizations, one company we worked with, we ran a demo, we had or a test pilot, we had 10 times more applicants in a 30 day timeframe for the same job that we rewrote and it was small enough to fit in your viewport on your, on your phone. And then the second bit, it removed all gender identification terms. And it was just purely about what can you do for us? Mm. And it was just, you see these results consistently in the marketplace these days. What are some examples of gender identification terms? Sure. So you're talking about like, so see, especially from a leadership perspective. So there's like drive and empower and manage 
and coach. If you look at each of those different words, empower feels like you're going to be accelerating something. So you're going to be putting the foot on the gas. All right. That is a word that is viewed as gender neutral. But if it is managed, there's a natural assumption because of the amount of men in leadership positions that that is they're looking for a male. So if wow. you look at like very simple terms like that, that can, that can, that can drive this own and operate ownership is a very kind of is a gender for is a gender identification term on the male side unfortunately where it is collaborate and collectively bring in are more feminine based terms on this one because they're preaching to how we operate on a biological level versus type a drive hunter kill versus uh, the farmer side of the house so it is a very interesting kind of blend um i could send and i'd send the the takeaways at the end of this is i'm happy to send you all kind of a look of what a b testing can bring from a job description standpoint but the biggest one is this is if there's any mention especially from a leadership standpoint of managing a team take out the word manage because that has been systematically driven into be more of a male term than it has been a female term. Very interesting little bit that I never assumed. I thought it was, hey, now if it is lead, for example, that is a very, that is a more of a gender diverse term at that standpoint. And Textio does a wonderful job of breaking down those terms for you. You can get a free evaluation for that. And then they're not a client. That's not, that's just a shameless plug right there for that, that, that piece of tech. Okay. We've covered the, idea of um, essentially diversity in the job description from a gender perspective. Have you also found, I don't, maybe the answer is no, but is there also any research around how a job description is written discriminates against race? So the, the most HR folks are going to go for the EEO standard, which means they're going to try to avoid that at every humanly possible. But there's one phrase that does this, and it is actually legally enforced. It is eligible to work in the United States without sponsorship. And that is, that is the one compliance layer that they're allowed to have. It is, it is legal segregation at that point or legal, uh, you know, pushback. Now what's, but most organizations that I've seen have not run into that. Now I'd be really curious if we ran this in different markets. I haven't seen it in a study that's deep on that particular one, but I do know from a pure compliance standpoint, whenever we say that, and I say we as the general we for HR leaders and people leaders, it is, we need to make sure we're keeping U.S. citizens only, which further narrows that, that, uh, that diversification opportunity with the organization. And unfortunately, the political atmosphere these days is becoming much harder to get sponsorship, much harder to get green cards, and much harder to get across. So there's become some rigid enforcement around that. And quite frankly, it's scaring a lot of people, unfortunately. We're talking with Timothy Visconti, the CEO and founder of PeopleLift. Before we transition to the next part of our conversation, I just want to let our listeners know about a new partner of the show in the Sales Hacker. If you are a longtime listener here, then you know that the guests I bring on are, tend to be more B2B startups or perhaps startups that are marketplace economies with a B2B side. Uh, in this case, PeopleLift is a B2B company. And Sales Hacker is the world's smartest community for forward-thinking B2B professionals. They have 135,000 members. And that means whether you're a CEO, a head of sales, sales rep, or anything in between that has to do with sales, Sales Hacker helps you get better at your job with podcasts, articles, webinars, and research from actual sales experts and practitioners, including yours truly. 
There's no fluff from outside content marketers. It's just a straight dope to grow your sales acumen. I'm a big fan of Sales Hacker, and that's why I'm really excited to have them as a partner of the podcast. Now, you can join the Sales Hacker community for free at www.saleshacker.com. Again, it is totally free. You can join the community and get access to all the articles, the research, and more at www.saleshacker.com. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're with Tim Visconti, the founder of PeopleLift, talking about inclusive hiring from day one. Now, Tim, when we talk about diversity, we tend to think of it in terms of either gender or ethnicity or race. There's a newer movement now, though, around neurodiversity. Can you talk to us about that? Sure thing. And I think it's actually been brought up in, in the best way because it is you have a presidential candidate who has really been enforcing this and bringing this along the way. So Andrew Yang, um, he's running for nomination on the Democrats uh, from the Democrat Party. And his first son, I believe, I think it's his first, uh, is slightly autistic. I mean, showed up on the uh, on the spectrum. And the concept of neurodiversity has been one that is relatively new. The earliest articles I can find in are from 2017 and 18 as a, as a thought process. But Neurodiversity at its core is taking on the very real fact that 90% of the population that registers as, as, as shows up on the spectrum as autistic is unemployed. And the unfortunate part of that is we don't have jobs. We collectively as, as a country don't have jobs that typically will allow those folks with very different wave patterns to be able to be successful in a day to day whether that be socially interactive jobs, whether that be customer facing jobs, jobs that require overwhelming input that neurodiverse brains typically cannot handle effectively. However, there is a growing movement of companies that are starting to look at what jobs can we put folks like this in that will have a wonderful opportunity for success? So highly analytical, highly repetitive uh, tasks that can be done over and over again in very flexible, free, very noise-reduced uh, environments. Not audio noise, but just input noise. How can we give very specific tasks on the day-to-day? And you're starting to see wonderful results on this. So again, the big number is 90% of those that register as autistic do not have a job. That is a untapped population for, uh, for this group. So when, when Andrew Yang was starting to bring this up on day to day, it's really what sparked me because you know, as a soon to be father on this end, there's always that, uh, that always that thought of how do I make sure that my, uh, the future is better for my progeny that are coming through or my kids. And then as a, as a business leader, how do I make sure that my employees have that opportunity as well? And neurodiversity is that kind of that next stage. So you had you have DNY, that's a DNI that's been really great for the past decade or so, and has a ton of momentum. This next topic is going to be how do we bring in the full uh, participation of the economy? How do we bring that in and find specific skills and uh, experiences and jobs to allow them to be successful as well? Whether it is neurodiversity or gender diversity or um, racial diversity. Once a candidate enters the hiring process, say sure. they've, their, their application has been reviewed and they've been contacted for an interview, what are some key areas that the people doing the interviewing need to be either looking out for in terms of their own bias or enacting to correct for that? 
I think you hit the big one is being aware of your own bias. We all have it. I, I preach this day to day. I study it for a business practice and we sell it as part of our core value. And then I ask folks to check me and check my own internal bias as it goes. So having that just very frank conversation that it's, that's why it is um, an internal bias. It is something we cannot functionally change. Now what we can do is recognize how this changes our decision-making capabilities and have put it in measures that can correct it. So one of the first things that we do from day one is that first honest conversation, you and your unique experiences growing up have, view the world in a way that it's impossible for me. Even through as much empathy as I can put, produce, I cannot view the world through your eyes. It's physically, emotionally, and psychologically impossible. What we can do is come to a baseline of what we're trying to achieve, which is outputs and what we assume to be the successful characteristics of that hire. So very clear wins and then very clear characteristics that we understand. And then removing all of the ancillary, unnecessary stuff that we talked about. For example, the 17 bullet point qualification, when you only really need three, let's remove the other 14. If education is not necessarily as necessary, removing the education layer and then making it part of the a general population look. So that's kind of the step two, which is recognition, changing of the easy, low-hanging fruit, old-school mentality. But then the last bit, and this is something that I really encourage, is not focusing on individual, like overweighing one person's opinion. Like hiring through consensus is a wonderful way of checking any individual person because you'll always have that one company or two companies or your clients, whatever it is, there's one person who's the decision maker, quote unquote. If this person doesn't pass with this person, they're all gone. In my company, that can happen in the very first conversation. And even if, I have liked folks that I've put in as a referral, as the boss that haven't made it through the front first line of the conversation. Fascinating, but what it does is it removes those unintended and unconscious biases that we all have as people. Yeah, and that's, I think, especially for young growing companies, that's one of the biggest potential traps to fall into because you have people you know. Your parents, friends, son is now coming into the workforce and because they know, oh yeah, this so-and-so can get you a job there, right? It's so easy. And generally, it is in the moment anyway, more affordable if you have some type of relationship with them um, off, you know, before they've even thought about working for you. Exactly. Hiring through convenience is one of the biggest things, and, and that's convenience Hiring of access. through convenience. Wow, it's, I like that phrase. And, that, and if no one wants to say that, you're like, no, I trust this person. I know this person. No, they're, conveniently, they're conveniently in your network or conveniently accessible right now. That is something that, that would be up front with you. It's just lazy, and I'm going to be very direct. Now, that does not say that's not the best person for the role. You can have someone that you know that is like, this person is perfect. They're the perfect balance for me as it goes. But I'll give a perfect example. I've, I've been in this space for 12 years. I know recruiters and IO psychologists from every part walk of life. I have only hired one out of our group that I have worked with previously because this part, the group that came through our, our process were the best for the job that were available. And that is just one of those situations where you have to embrace the fact that it, on the global scale, the chances of you knowing somebody as the best fit is such a low percentage hit that you is real. It's almost just mathematically irresponsible for you to do that. So that's why I call it the convenience hire. In that hiring process, essentially it is treated more like you're a, a government where you have a system of checks and balances and one person just can't do everything. Right. That's a good, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Right. 
Now, in that interview process, whether it is one person or it's now a five-person interview, or you know, five people are doing the interview, are there, similar to how in job descriptions there are discriminatory, there's discriminatory language that we're trying to remove, are there discriminatory questions in the interview process? Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you run at the you know, age, sex, you know, gender, one through all those, if anybody asks any of the EEO level questions, I mean, that's just a, that's a hard pass. And it's something that it's, it's zero tolerance fire for my organization. That's one. And unfortunately, folks do that a pretty significant bit. The second bit is asking what their current compensation is is another one that's kind of an unconscious one that used to be viewed as a way of like benchmarking. Hey, can I afford this person or not? When the reality is that women are paid less than men by on standard. So when you ask a woman what she's currently making, even at a man, a man, a male at the certain or at the same band, the same experience level, there's a chance of being paid significantly higher. That's a discriminatory practice from day one. So it's really interesting that New York and uh, California have eliminated that. You cannot ask what that is because that's, again, another example of those unconscious ones. One of the ones that I'm a, a bigger believer in is when, they're, when you're asking about conflict resolution, for example. Like walk me through a time where you had a conflict with a manager or a peer. What was it? How would you approach it differently? And what did you learn from the situation? When you ask things in that format, You've essentially given someone free reign to give them a, 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 an answer that registers quickly for them versus when did you have a problem with your boss? And that in those type of very, those questions to me, and this is something we can, I, I'm happy to test out at scale. Those questions to me, when you ask someone, your boss, what is your problem with somebody? That is something that's really kind of a, as a directed one, which can be taken on a gender side, whereas men are more going to be aggressively take care of this. We're going to talk about this right now, by and large, versus women through collaboration. Instead of give me a situation where you saw it. Could it be my situation, could be somebody else's situation. Instead of your time that you've done this. The other bit to me, um, taking out you know compensation, taking out your gender identification, is have you ever had a culture challenge with somebody? Now, this whole hiring for culture thing, we can go down this in a whole different side little path, is a very interesting unique value prop uh, proposition right now because it is almost embedding some form of discriminatory practice by saying they're not a culture fit. When you're not a culture fit, there's a major challenge to that because you're saying you're not, you're not our culture fit. So if it's a group of one subsect of the population that's in, they're not that, you're not a culture fit, say if it's a group of white males, for example, that could be a challenge because you're looking at that and saying, of course, because you're not white male, you're not going to get into the club, if you will, versus on the other side, it is you know, accountability and transparency and all those important words for us that you can be used as exclusionary terms as well. So I may have got a little bit off rails right there, but it's an interesting. No, it's very, it's very similar to uh, what Harvard Business Review studied from a few years back in, in VC conversations where they found that men would get asked or more, male entrepreneurs were more likely to get asked by investors in pitch meetings what they deemed promotion-oriented questions versus women were more likely to get asked prevention-oriented questions. So, for mm -hmm. example, if the topic was around business growth, a woman founder might get asked, when do you break even, mm -hmm. which is a question generally about revenue and growth. But those, the, the male entrepreneur may get asked, or is more likely to get asked, I should say, how do you plan to grow the company? Exactly. You're asked, when do you break even? You're probably going to say fall 2021. Yep. You ask, 
if you're going to ask, how do you plan to grow this? You now have a platform to share a story. Similar to what you were saying was walk me through a situation where that's a platform to tell a story. Exactly. And when it's by consciously eliminating the platform, whether you believe it or not, you've just built in a layer of bias that you're, it may not, you may not be able to recover from. And that, that's on both sides of the house, because if you're not set up for success on the candidate side, you're asking someone to crawl uphill to get a job versus when you're trying to recruit somebody, you're trying to sell them on the opportunity of working here. Their candidates are in such high demand these days that you have to be cognizant of the fact that if you ask them a question that makes them feel like they're going to get put in a box, it's unnecessary for them. They could turn you down flat out. And then this economy, that's a risk. You can't really be, you can't be bringing that part of the process in it, especially from a startup perspective. Right. We are getting close to our wrap up here. I want to ask you as well. I mean, really there are a lot of this conversation. So it's, it's timely because I just recently started reading the book, super pumped the battle for Uber which yep. is all about former Uber founder and CEO, Travis Kalanick's rise and fall. And so much as Uber ha achieved its hyper growth was, so much of it was around Travis Kalanick trying to find many Travis Kalanicks in every city that they open. And then the culture just being one that was horrible towards women, horrible towards, um, towards homosexuals, horrible towards, really anyone who wasn't the prototypical like Silicon Valley male right? who didn't fit that exactly. mold and and then we saw the fallout from there and, and a lot of what you're saying here is is really to or it's, it's around like how do you not let that happen yeah. now something I hear a decent amount mm -hmm. various people whether they are in a startup or whether they are in more established organization is well we look for diversity in thought and that's something that i personally take issue with i'm curious to get your your read on that well i mean because you're you're asking the same question you're just framing it in a little bit of a different way you're like how what is your belief system based off of how you were, you were raised and when you're saying diversity of thought that is a really unique, to me, it seems, just seems like a, a disingenuous way of saying, are you, do you grow up, do you believe the same things that I believe? And if you're looking for someone to bring different experiences to the table, of course, they're going to bring in different thoughts on the matter. So I think that that is, in my opinion, that's, it's kind of a backwards way to look at it. Um, I've never asked that question to be upfront with you. I've never made that as a requirement, but it's also, and again, just off the, off the cuff, it reminds me of when I was working in a financial institution in which they were asking, you know, to walk me through your success in these very narrow requirements and very narrow experiences because they wanted to see if you thought like a banker, if you thought like a, someone who was on the investment side or on the, on the transaction side. And it was just a very unfortunate way of making sure that every person in the same room believed the same things, thought the same things and acted the same way because they just wanted that same target persona. Um, so I, 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 it's very interesting that you brought that up to me. Um, candidly, is that probably gives me a little bit tough to research to be upfront with you. So just a, if that's a trend these days, it sounds like a disingenuous way of asking the same, do you, are you the exact same as me? Yeah, and, and I, it's funny because I think those who say, well, we believe in diversity of thought, if you look at their employee base, it tends to be all people who look the same. Exactly. And, 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 the, and the excuse is, well, but they, they're all individuals, right? They all bring their own experiences to the table. And, and my mm -hmm. response to that is, 
okay, yes, everyone has their own identity. Everyone is their own person. I'm not taking that away from anyone. However, when it comes to matters of having a diverse workforce or diversity in general, you will, even though each person may be their own individual person, mm -hmm. the thought pattern will tend to all ski, will all tend to melt into the same, same vat yep. if everyone looks the same. And that's because they may be their own person, but the world reacts to you based on what you look like or what you sound like or, or you know, your preferences, right? And if the world has reacted to you in basically the same way, you're going to have more or less the same framework of thought. You are a product of your experiences, absolutely. And I mean, if, and if by just a pure population um, standpoint, if you look at that the way that you just described it, and this is the unfortunate part of why the vast majority of VCs, vast majority of executive boards are occupied by one particular subsect of the population is because it's been a conscious effort from day one. And it's been, whether as you, they will admit it out loud or they will say it's an unconscious bias. I, it is fascinating how that's changing even these days, because I think there's something we actually haven't talked about is kind of like the, why is this become so prevalent and, and necessary these days? Candidly, it's more of a reflection of the, of the population as it's growing through. Millennials are the most diverse population subsect, especially in the United States, that this country has ever seen. You're, talking, you're starting to see 2050 as the date that white becomes a subsect of a minority in a lot of ways. Exactly. So you're starting to see these trends. And you're even talking about bringing on the political spectrum. Why do you think there was such a swing back in a lot of ways against some of the progress that was felt in the previous administration sure. um, from a DNI perspective? So you're seeing these things. And then what happens is as younger generations are coming up and saying, that doesn't matter. This is my population. This is what I'm used to. So diversity of thought is, sounds a lot like what did you make in your previous gig? It's that what school, what did you go to this professor? How did this professor think about you versus who are you? What experiences can you bring to the table? And how can we move and move the needle together? Yep. Let's begin our wrap up now. Can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about People Lift, where they can find you and get in touch? Sure thing. So across all social media, if you type in People Lift, you'll find us. So it's at lift underscore people on Instagram, Twitter, and www.peoplelift.com to find us. If you were on various podcasts, we're on various LinkedIn networks as well. You can find this uh, growing across each individual markets. We'll be speaking a lot of HR conferences as, as we're upcoming as well. Uh, but the biggest one, um, if you just look up organizations that are trying to make it a dent and bring in these, uh, these DNI inclusions and day to day, my hope is our SEO is strong enough that we're going to pop up on your search as well. So, uh, but peoplelift.com for the fastest way. Well, that said, when would be the right time? for someone who's listening to this, who's part of a growing company, um, when would be the right time that a company reaches out to people lift? The, in terms of, so we have a staff that runs around the clock. It's a beautiful thing. So if you hit us up at any point in time, you'll get a response back within an hour. But typically we are based on Eastern and Pacific standard time. So hit us up and directly through our website would be the fastest way to get to us. You know, eight, eight to five for the standards, but I'm an entrepreneur, man, which means I'm working 24 seven as it is. You hit me up on a Saturday, you'll get a response back on a Saturday as it, as it goes. I should, I, mean, sorry, I, should, I should rephrase my question. We'll, we'll cut that part. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should rephrase. What I meant was like, in terms of like their own growth, like when should oh. you? Oh, 
Gotcha. When, when you're looking, if you're going to factor your company by a factor of two, so if you're going to go from three to six, from five to 10 in the next 12 months, that is the time to build it in because the furthest, the farther you get away from your business and the farther you start, the more you start to empower leadership levels to start taking over is the moment you start subjecting your own culture to those biases. And you need to make sure that those are built in and those pragmat pragmatic ways of removing those are built in from day one. To wrap up, we will each give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners today. I'll start and then I'll toss it to you. Our topic today was inclusive hiring from day one. Um, to me, a couple things come to mind. Um, you know, we brought about several issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, including neurodiversity. Um, one thing that it made me think about as well, because I've seen it in some companies, is just because you, you are a quote unquote minority founder doesn't mean you're excused from this stuff either. Because I see it happening where, you know, it may be a, I don't know, let's say a male minority founder and it still ends up being a company of mostly men. But since the founder's a minority, it's okay. And it's not okay. Like you still need to check for these things and still need to focus on diversity even if you yourself are diverse because you'll just build essentially the same type of company but but now in, a, in that thought pattern that way if you don't make an effort in these things and then the other the other lesson or takeaway that i think is really important here is start with this early like you said if you're growing from two to four or three to six or five to ten because if you think, oh, well, we'll address that when we get a little bit bigger and then we've got a bunch of capital to focus on it, you won't because now you've, you've already ingrained a certain culture that you're just going to want to keep, uh, you're, you're going to want that culture to persist. Mm -hmm. So if you don't emphasize it early, and in my opinion, I think that even goes to like, and, and it can be tough for some early stage startups, you got you to gotta really pick and choose here, but understand like unpaid internships are a privilege. There are highly qualified people who could do the job of an intern, but they cannot, maybe they're supporting their family. They cannot afford to work for you for free. So just think through the micro issues like that before you just blank like, well, hey, we'll get some unpaid interns from whatever college and we'll be good. Tim, top one or two takeaways or lessons for the listening audience? Biggest one, at least on my side, was when you're asking for this diversity of thought. And I'm going to do a lot more dig in on that because that, if that question is creeping its way into, into the ecosystem at scale, because it has, has not been brought up in, in my experience, at least to, uh, uh, thus far, that to me is a, as a massive misstep on trying to find a more sensitive way of asking the same prejudicial question. And, and that to me is something that as I begin to see that, I'll be, I'm going to be really taking it as a step back here on this one. Uh, but then the, 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 the biggest one is that anytime we can have this conversation and anytime that we can have a platform and at the general we as, an or, as a country, we need to be looking at this and saying, just because somebody looks a certain way, it, it comes from a certain background. We don't want to put them in that box or on the flip side, we don't want to as, a, as an organization by creating these artificial barriers, 
reduce our potential to grow our business significantly. I mean, the math behind diversity is there and it, it absolutely supports the general uh, the moralistic direction of this uh, of this country as we're going and we just need to keep talking about it as many different ways and as many different platforms as possible because it there's great momentum let's not lose it my final question before i let you go is how i end every conversation here on startup hype man the podcast tim fill in the blank entrepreneurship is blank a privilege to go back to what you just mentioned, the ability to start your own organization indicates a certain level of privilege and success that you've been able to attain, whether that's success from a previous gig or the opportunity and access to certain areas in, in the population. So why minority-based ownership needs to increase because it is absolutely a privilege. It can be painful, it can be tiring, it can be exhausting, but it is a privilege from day one because you're given the ability to chart your own direction in this world, which is a small percentage of the global population. This was a wonderful conversation, one of my favorites I've ever had on the show. He is Tim Visconti, the founder of People Lift. Tim, thank you for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. It's a pleasure, look forward to coming back. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can share this episode with a friend or you can leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast page. When you do that, it boosts us in the search results. And ultimately, that means more entrepreneurs will listen, which means we share the message, we spread the mission, and support more entrepreneurs at the end of the day. You don't have to stop with the podcast if you want more. And if you are interested in telling your company's story better across your demo calls to investors and to any audience you seek, well, then why not have a conversation with me? Head to startuphypeman.com, fill out a form there, and let's talk. If you've got recommendations for future guests for the show or you want to be a guest on the show yourself, email media at startuphypeman.com. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man, the podcast. We will see you next time. Hype Man out. Word up. Raise up. Got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This dance with the devil, bro. Instead of sundown too yeah. Ooh, This a dance with the devil bro. Tell me what you gonna do yeah. This a dance with the devil bro. And if you can't get it loose Then they fall into the truth It got you howling at the moon yeah. This a dance with the devil bro. Instead of sundown yeah. This a dance with the devil bro. Tell me what you gonna do It's a dance with the devil.